2: Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 15th, 2018, the House Speaker John Lewis edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in Washington, D.C., and you know who's with me? Guess who? It's John Dickerson. John of CBS This Morning. Why are you down here? It's so nice. I'm I'm so
1: happy to be with you. Uh, I'm down here to interview uh, Cindy McCain. That's the first time she's been interviewed since uh, Senator McCain died. So I'm going to rush off after I'm with you two and uh, go talk to her.
2: That is great. Well, it's lovely to see you. You look good. You seem in the pink. I'm glad to see all those months away in New York. You haven't lost weight. <laughs> you have good color. That's good. I'm glad. no gone. wasting diseases. Your teeth are straight. It's good. <laughs> uh, Emily Bazelon is in New Haven, the New York Times Magazine. Hello, Emily. Hello,
3: hello. I'm enjoying your reunion, even though I'm not there for it.
2: On this week's show, it was a blue wave. We will talk about why the last week of election results have cheered Democrats. And also how the recounts in Florida are turning into a referendum on democratic elections, trust in democratic elections, faith in democracy. Then will Nancy Pelosi be Speaker of the House? Will House Democrats impeach President Trump? The two big questions facing the new democratic majority in the House. We will uh, grapple with both of them. And then the crazy saga of Matt Whitaker, the sort of maybe possibly Attorney General of the United States. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And before we go any further reminder, on December 12th at NYU Skirbel Center in Manhattan, we will have our annual conundrum show. Simon Dunin will be our guest for some of the show, and we are going to grapple with amazing conundrums. You should please send us some more. We've gotten some great ones from you. But please tweet at us at at Slate Gabfest um with your great ideas. Here are a couple that I like that we've gotten in so far. If you could move the holidays on the calendar, how would you rearrange them? For example, would you move Thanksgiving to March? There's less of a pile up. Another one from another uh listener was if you could only eat one color of food for the rest of your life, what color would you choose? Which is a that's a that's a tough one. Anyway, those and even deeper, deeper issues, please send them to us at at Gabfest, or ge- email us at GabFest at Slate.com if you, if you uh, don't want to do it publicly. Uh, and please come to the show. You can still get tickets at Slate.com slash live. It's a joyful, delightful, fun evening. Please join us December 12th. We're nine days past the midterm elections. Not everything is settled. First of all, the early results, the results that people on the East Coast uh, watching on election night saw were a little bit misleading. His data now suggests that Democrats had a much better night than it felt like early in the evening, that their Democratic triumph was perhaps as vast as the Republican triumph was in 2010. Democrats captured hundreds of state legislative seats, perhaps 35, maybe even more House seats, uh, six governorships, I think. And they pounded Republicans in several key states that will be important in the 2020 presidential election. Uh, but there's one big, big question mark out there. Florida, dear Florida. Uh, has three recounts going now. There are three close races, two important ones, as far as we're concerned. The governor's race between Ron DeSantis and Andrew Gillum, uh, Republican first, Democrat second there, and the much closer Senate race uh, between Nelson and Scott for Bill Nelson and Rick Scott for Senate. So, um, Emily, what is going on with those recounts now? And, And is this a useful exercise? Is it important that this happen? It does seem like, you know, we're 10 days gone. What's up, man?
3: Really? I mean, it seems to me like it's important I'm just to count saying, all I was just saying that. Just, I'm, just blame, I
2: don't, I don't, I'm just trying to create tension. It's, all right. Well, you did. <laughs> you, you got
3: me to react. I mean, look, first of all, we got to count all the votes. Second of all, Florida has a law that if the um, election is within half a point, there's an automatic recount. Seems pretty sensible to me. I mean, you're just trying to make sure that the will of the people actually materializes in the election results. That, of course, is the sort of you know, blue sky version of this. There are also things going on on the ground in Florida, you know, like a box of ballots in a high school cafeteria somewhere. These sort of questions about how competent and sure-footed election officials are being or have been along the way. And I understand why, you know, people get worked up about those things in both parties. But the notion that there's something wrong with um, having a recount and that 10 days out from an election, it's like an outrage that we don't know the winner. I mean, that's just like the administrative election process working itself out.
1: Well, you, you, you've had this situation where Republicans, some of them, most notably and importantly, the president, have basically made recount equal uh, or tried to, I should say, make recount equal theft of the ballot. Um, Which is, you know, an amazing thing when we think about um, just yet another norm that's being shredded, um, that the president is reaching down into Florida and not, you know, saying one of a hundred other things he could say. But he's saying essentially that there is fraud going on. Um, That's really amazing. And and, um, so – so then you have this complicating problem which, which as Emily said this is, this recount is all you know uh, mandated and uh, by law but then you have Brenda Snipes in Broward County where even the Sun Sentinel says no we don't think that she stole anything it's just that she's incompetent and there are these stories of of incompetence that have been associated with her office which doesn't which you know, muddies the picture. What's
2: interesting really? John you're you're of course a historian of this stuff it, to me is that actually Really, until quite recently, until practically our own lifetimes, elections were filled with a huge amounts of fraud and chicanery and post-election, you know, finding of ballots and manipulation, especially in in certain cities with strong political machines. And so it's it's not as though it's not as though people's sense that this could be tampered with is is misguided. It, I think it's not the case that they are, but it is because even within the lifetime of Donald Trump, this has really happened at a significant level.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, people assume that John Kennedy was basically elected president through uh, through fraud. So, you know, some of the biggest um, – uh, there are big examples of this. But that's why um, I think Emily's point, which is that there is a system in place actually for working through this and um, – and that's why given the the existing possible suspicion it seems to me that as a public official your job is not to add to the suspicion is uh, because of the you know you're you're basically fanning the flames
3: what frustrates me is that Every election we encounter the flaws and weaknesses of our system, which is actually thousands of different county systems. We have no centralized method of ballot counting, no agreed upon methods for even designing a ballot, um as we're seeing again in Florida, where the Broward County ballot may have disadvantaged um Democratic Senate candidate Bill Nelson. So there every time we hear about all these problems, there's wringing of hands, you know, old ballot machines, like county officials who don't know what they're doing. And then instead of having a kind of rigorous scrutiny, a a review that might yield to a better system, we're having from President Trump in particular, but also some Republican candidates, both Rick Scott in Florida and a couple of Republicans in Orange County, Florida, have picked up this idea that there is fraud, that, you know, the Democrats are cheating and stealing the election. And the um un the to, to make those accusations with no basis um Is scary. Like, it's the shredding of a norm that has kept the country, has allowed for a peaceful transition of power in all the times that we've had a country. Like, it is actually the most foundational thing about democracy that you acknowledge that someone else won an election and you hand over the reins of power to them. And I really wonder what this augurs for 2020 if we see close elections um, that year, especially involving Trump himself.
1: One quick little wrinkle we should mention on Thursday, uh, a judge in Florida announced that um, uh, the state has to give voters whose mismatched signatures disqualified their ballots until Saturday at 5 to correct those signature problems. Um, So this is a part of the law that requires people who vote by mail to sign their ballot and if that signature – doesn't match the one they first used when they registered, then the vote doesn't count. So this is, I think, the the portion that some Republicans, I think, including uh, Marco Rubio, has said is they're changing the rules after the effect, after the fact, right? So the original rule was the signatures have to match. Now, Democrats are asking for the rules to be changed, yeah, whether but the you rule buy is that argument that you can or not.
3: Go, right. But the rule is you can go to court and challenge what looks like throwing out a ballot for no reason. It's not changing the rules. It's using our system to try to get a, a ruling from a, judge to preserve valid ballots, which could be Republican or Democratic ballots.
1: So the judges just ruled that, that uh, people can go uh, solve that problem if that, was, if that was what invalidated their vote. So that's one of the ways that Nelson, who is, I think, what, 13,000 votes behind Scott, mm-hmm. that was one of the ways in which he might close that gap. But whether or not... This has whatever the practical effect of it of it is. The fact that the judge has now ruled, you know, sort of in Nelson's favor, will uh, likely set off a whole new round of what you were describing previously. Uh, in terms of Republicans using this to say you're changing the rules after the game.
2: A couple of small points on some things that you've said. One, it's it is very interesting that signatures are still so important yeah. because as yeah. somebody, I think I was listening to this on maybe on the Daily yesterday, that pe- people signatures have. People people no longer have stable signatures. Young people in particular use handwriting so little and they have to sign so rarely that they don't have a stable signature in the way that you had to a generation ago. Um
3: I don't really have fact, a stable a lo- signature. I don't know about you guys. Like I actually find it hard to do it the same way every time. Anyway, go ahead.
2: Yeah. No, I mine mine is mine is decaying also. Especially I mean the credit card signature is nonsense. By the way, yeah. the credit card companies have basically given up yeah. on
1: the signature yeah. nonsense.
2: Um the other point is Emma, I would dispute your notion that the Broward County ballot disadvantaged Nelson. The Broward County ballot wasn't it didn't disadvantage Nelson, it just disadvantaged people <laughs> seeing the Senate vote and it happened because Broward County is democratic that Nelson was the person hurt. So it wasn't True. it wasn't Good. designed to hurt Nelson. It was just it was just designed poorly such that that the Senate was less visible which is I think is a, an important distinction. Yes, it had the effect um,
3: of disadvantaging Nelson. True. But, and,
1: and, and the effect, by the way, right, is that it's 25,000 fewer votes uh, in cast in the Senate race than in any other race, right? That's the disadvantage. Than in the governor's race. Than in the, in go- the Right, than in the, any other race. In, in a, a very
3: John, Democratic district.
2: Yes. right, right. John, I want to go back to the 2000 election because, of course, the, the recount uh, uh, drama occupied the nation at a, even in a much grander way. Um, it was much more important. Much bigger things were at stake. One thing that I think is a distinction, and maybe I'm wrong, is that in in 2000, it was certainly – Republicans were very aggressive about uh, about fighting for uh, George Bush's victory and for making sure that the, the recount happened in the way that they wanted it to happen. There was not this undercurrent of fraud as a claim was it? I Oh think
1: yeah, it... yeah, yeah, yeah. The Brooks Brothers riot is about um the, the Republican staffers rioting at the at the But it uh, voting... was about
2: how they were ca- It wasn't that there was voting fraud. Well, yeah, but they were count- it was that They no,
1: were... It, but the fraud was t- sorry, sorry. Okay, sorry.
2: no, you go ahead. You go no, ahead. It's
1: all related. No, but uh, my re-
3: right.
2: my recollection
1: is that they were saying that they're they're stealing the election in the in the in the how they were counting. Um I mean, there're two, two I think uh, it was a little bit fuzzy here, but I think there were at least two arguments. One was don't count the hanging chads you can't possibly determine some of the chads weren't fully punched that's um that's a kind of uh you know that's about just the form of the ballot and then there but then the brooks brothers riot i think which was when republican staffers from washington uh, many of whom wore their brooks brothers suit uh, shirts because they including, were Including, i think brett Kavanaugh. i oh, think yeah. brett Kavanaugh yes, was there he was i think you i think he you're was, right Yes. Uh, you know, and they were it, they were um, imports from Washington trying to look like locals, um, were arguing that fraud was taking place. Um, and just quickly, while we're we're here, the norm's changing. the The gore staffers, who basically did the same thing, which is to, or not the same thing, sorry, they all everybody flocked to Florida. But the Gore staffers took off their campaign pins because there was a norm against looking like you were trying to fight out the campaign. In this judicial uh, or this kind of official proceeding. Um, now that's completely gone. Even the pre- pretense that this is not a totally partisan fight. Nobody's even keeping that pretense anymore at this part. And I think that's a result of the fact that Democrats feel like Republicans always treated the Florida recount in 2000 as a partisan fight to the death. And that they Democrats were um, naive about the trust in the system.
2: Emily. Everyone in America, on both sides, likes to win an election. Republicans like to get lots of votes and win. Democrats like to get lots of votes and win. Libertarians like to get enough votes to spoil things. Uh, Everyone enjoys casting a ballot. And so do you think that the Republican, the effort, which is in this case on behalf of Republicans in Florida, is an effort to, to fundamentally undermine the notion of democracy? Or do you just think it is? it has the side effect of undermining democracy because it goes after these institutions, but it's, that's not really its intent?
3: I mean, I think it's the intent is self-interested. Rick Scott wants to be seated in the Senate, and he wants to make sure that if this count flips, that there's a lot of questions about that and that he can go back in and try to reverse it yet again. What is shocking to me is how little regard there are for the collateral effects of this, right? Like, let's imagine that Scott does not actually want to undermine American democracy. He is a patriot, likes this country, just like the rest of us. He's willing to kind of play with fire. And of course, President Trump is willing to do that, too. And there's just this um, heedlessness about what the consequences and potential ripple effects of this kind of these kinds of baseless accusations are. And if they start to become the norm, Then you just wonder, like, if that's going to add this whole other element to American elections, like the apathy that people feel about the democracy, too, can um, come into play, this kind of hopelessness, like this is an unfair rigged system from beginning to end. And all that's really dangerous. But and yet, like the warning signs that political scientists put out again and again about how this is um, corrosive just get swept away um, by Republicans.
1: And we should note that the Department of Law Enforcement and the Division of Elections in Florida have both found no evidence that ballots uh, were, were being, you know, that there's fraud and that ballots are being pulled out of, you know, uh, closets in which they were hidden. And um, so, and, and Scott but, controls as governor has control over those. Is also amazing, by the way, just in another norm that's or another part of our political world. Right, Pam Bondi, the Attorney General uh, of Florida criticized uh, the Department of Law Enforcement. And some people saw that as an attempt to basically audition to the president for the attorney general's job or some other job in the administration. I'll criticize the
2: law enforcement I'm I'm associated with. Right. And so
1: you have this weird... So it's just a way in which norm-breaking, president broke a norm by reaching down into the Florida race and claiming something for which there is no evidence. And then to seek to get a job with that president, you uh, affirm his broken right. norm. Yep. And that's the way adhesion for partisan and political purposes and ambition purposes shifts the entire institutional norm structure, because now you have an attorney general of the state criticizing a, uh, a division of the state without, as far as I've seen in anything I've read, any evidence. Um, and it just when we think about what norm breaking does uh, at the presidential level, because of the adhesion of partisanship, uh, it it shifts entire institutions over to his new position.
2: I want to grapple with one other small thing, and then actually I want to talk about this blue wave question. So, the to me, Emily, the worst of the the worst um, election manipulation or the the worst shadow on the election actually is not in Florida. It, it continues to be what happened in Georgia, where where Brian Kemp, the secretary of state oversaw a campaign to limit voter registration, strike people from the rolls in the years leading up to his own race for governor, which he then won uh, very narrowly, again, continuing as secretary of state to oversee the whole election process up until uh, the election. Um, That to me is, is the, is the worst of those. And that Florida, Florida seems to me to be uh, relatively small beer compared to what Kemp did.
3: Yeah. I mean, what you see with Kemp is a kind of stranglehold on um, the registration process that disadvantaged Democrats and disadvantaged Stacey Abrams, who before she ran for governor, was trying to sign more people up to vote. And, you know, the end game here is that in a state that is changing, that has more people of color, that has more people who would presumably vote Democratic, you kind of calcify the electoral composition of that state. You keep the old guard in power who happen to be white Republicans by making it hard for other people to vote. And I think that is absolutely what we're seeing in Georgia. You know, Stacey Abrams is, I think, still trying to get a runoff against Kemp because if um, Kemp doesn't have above 50 percent of the vote, there's an automatic um, runoff election in Georgia. But if she doesn't make that threshold, it is going to be hard to think it was not affected by these hundreds of thousands of registrations that were thrown out.
2: Is there any bigger gap in, in or bigger discordance in a title as Secretary of State? That the Secretary of State at a state and the Secretary of State of the country, like they have nothing to do with each other. Yeah, it's so confusing. It's Whenever true. I hear Secretary of State, Secretary of State in a state is like, you know, the administrator, and then Secretary of State for the country. John is just, John is like, why no, are <laughs> you? Yeah. Like, why is plots why Andy Rooney? Oh, no,
3: no. But I feel like no, it's an, it's I, I an wanna... Andy Rooney moment of significance, because, like, if you have confusion, it's hard enough to keep straight what all these government officials do. If you have this confusion built in, it makes it harder for people to understand what this office is and why they should care about it locally. Uh,
2: which they should. All right, uh, John, last question, um, which is not really this topic, but Let's let's throw towards it too. Uh, was this a, a much more successful election for Democrats than than people thought? At least at the beginning of Tuesday night.
1: Yeah, and I think for the reasons you uh, you mentioned, there was also there was a split decision though, as we talked about last week. Immediately upon saying that, is it because there were these structural issues in the Senate races? I think there was a, there was also some over over excitement about the idea that Democrats might take back the Senate, which was always a super 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 long shot for all of the structural reasons that we're now talking about so I think that might have been part of it. But in the end, um, those California results, the fact that according to David Wasserman at the Cook Political Report, the the Democrats won the popular House vote by about seven points. The total number in the House, I think, of Democratic pickups is going to be closer to 40, which means that um, that it is the third largest gain uh, in the last 40 years after 2010 and 1994. Now, why does this all matter? Well, it matters because it's our best... Actual temperature taking of the mood of the country. It's not polling. It's not hot takes on Twitter and it's not punditry. It's actual human beings doing what is necessary and it ratifies to me all the previous work which is to say when you go and ask somebody to write a check. They're like, eh, my money's going out in the wind. They convinced Democratic donors and for the final quarter in the race, 112 Democrats in competitive Republican seats outraised their opponents. That then led to these pickups so that you now as a Democrat, if you're thinking about how do we run for 2020, you now have data that says, hey, if you organize, if you go out and you sign people up, separating apart Emily's point about Georgia – it will lead to this result. That's really strong medicine for going out and making uh, the next set of a- appeals to um, to voters. It also – you know, when we talk about the, the leadership race, which we will in a minute, Republicans went back to the playbook and tried to demonize Democrats by tying them to Nancy Pelosi. Well, that didn't work in a lot of these districts that were more moderate districts or swingy-ish or battleground districts and where you might imagine that working more than, say, a deep blue district. So the nature and size of the victory is really the most important for the people who are planning the next race. It's not just a kind of uh, kind of semantic debate about what's a wave and what's not a wave.
2: Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GapFest and other Slate podcasts. And today's Slate Plus segment, we're going to talk about the centennial of the end of World War I, 100 years since the armistice, probably the most pointless w- war ever fought, the worst war ever fought, the greatest waste in human history arguably, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member today. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. favorite things. Aura Frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. House Democrats, now a rampant majority. Face two, big decisions in the coming months. First, they must choose the Speaker. Well, I guess the whole House must choose the Speaker, but Democrats will drive that. Will they once again choose Nancy Pelosi to lead the House? Second, will they seek to impeach President Trump? Both of these questions were campaign issues. As many as two dozen Democrats now in the House, many of them newly elected, said or indicated while campaigning that they would not support Pelosi for Speaker that is a problem given their majority is only, I don't know, 18 or so. Uh, similarly, Tom Steyer gave a lot of money to some of these new House members as part of his need to impeach campaign. And now some of them and perhaps a majority of Democratic voters feel a need to impeach, feel a longing to impeach. So let's take these each of these two questions. John, let's start with the Pelosi. Uh, it is weird to me that <laughs> Nancy Pelosi, who has was an incredibly effective legislator, who is a, obviously a very, very brilliant politician, great leader of the Democrats for many years. Now, she has been there a long time. You could argue she's been there too long. But that essentially a campaign ginned up by Republicans who don't like her would cause Democrats to abandon abandon her.
1: Well, I don't think that's the only reason they want to abandon her. And in fact, it gets at the tension. I think in some of the anti-Pelosi things, I mean, my baseline position, I have two strong positions going into this. One is you can't beat something with nothing. And there is no, this is this used to happen in the races against John Boehner, which is that re- restive Republicans would say, we got to get rid of John Boehner's speaker. And then th- there was never any alternative to John Boehner who could get more than a handful of votes. Now, that didn't remove the pressure in the system that ultimately bounced Boehner from office. That's the first thing. Second thing is, Lots and lots of rules of politics are totally being rewritten right now, and so that first thing I said is has <laughs> has some uh, stuff in it that may no longer be the case anymore, and may no longer be true, which is what makes politics so exciting and so cool and so. Um, and requires really keeping the eye on the ball. And so you have a new, uh, you know, those new members we talked about who are coming into the to the uh, Democratic conference are energized and they are the future of the Democratic Party and they ran outside in some cases the system. And so all of that energy has to have somewhere to go. And so um, – but I still sort of believe in the first the first we'll end up ruling in the end here. But on this question of whether Pelosi is a um, there, on the one hand, people are arguing, look, we need younger uh, faces in leadership. We need um, something that suggests the next generation. And then then there's this argument that she's a she's going to, you know, Republicans are going to use her against them. I just don't – I think that they proved that the the attacks on Nancy Pelosi are not effective. Um, And I think then we should – and I'll shut up and you guys can answer this. What what do Democrats want their speaker to do in this? And one thing I would just point out is she is now the leader of the Democratic Party. Until there's a Democratic nominee, she is the leader of the Democratic Party. So what exactly does one – what would a Democrat with interest of the party, what would they want her to do or want the speaker to do?
3: Is it about what they want her to do or is it more have to do with the optics, like the fact that she as a leader, right? Like as the leader of the Democratic Party, it's her face. She's been so pilloried. She's been seen as a liability. I mean, I think if they accept what you just said, John, that the attacks on her aren't effective, then a lot of the argument against her – goes away. Um, except for this thing of like, well, she's been there forever. We should just have someone new already. That's, you know, that's what I am hearing from them is this idea of new voices, which is sort of content free, right? It has more to do with like style than substance.
2: Well, there's this other problem, which is that they there's a bunch of people who made commitments who said during the campaign that they wouldn't support her for speaker. Yes. Enough of them that if they actually live up to those commitments, she might not be able to be speaker. So- I think you know in a in a in the cynical pragmatic world that I want to live in those people would be like all right you know you'd you'd let as many of those people out of their promise as possible you'd allow some of them to stick to it and you'd make sure you have 218 uh, you know where five of them are going to abandon it and those five are in relatively safe democratic seats I assume that's what will happen
1: I think that's exactly right it's one of the one of the first tests of Nancy Pelosi's leadership will be to rescue new members from their promises by allowing them to vote against her. And this is one of the all great uh, House leaders know how to do this, which is to make sure you're going to win and then give everybody who needs to vote against you. You know, this is vote no, but hope yes, right? And that's so So she will uh, be helping out using her skills and her knowledge of the way these things work. The very people who pledged and were elected on the idea that they would that they would kick her out and that's why I asked what do you want her to do because yes, there's the she's the face of the Democratic Party until there's a nominee but then she also – if you believe that one of the ways that Democrats are going to uh, – should most beneficially spend their next two years is to, to be heavy on policy and to really go at the president where he is weakest to the extent that you believe that healthcare helped – uh, Democrats in this last race and this again goes at this question of blue wave. If you believe there was a blue wave and it was uh, created in part by a focus on healthcare, then you could argue that's the way the Democrats should be- spend the next year and a half and if that's so, then she as a tactician in the House would know how to use the process which gets covered by the news media and also has obviously some real stuff to it. I mean it is the functioning of one branch of Congress. Use the process to best effect to keep teeing up those essential policy questions if you believe this idea that Democrats need one of their – one of the ways to r- revive the party is to be a heavily policy-oriented uh, party. I believe that. Emily. So if, um, you, but-
3: if you were a Democratic strategist and you could just wave a magic wand, right, like all of the messiness of a big fight, you just forget about Pelosi's power for a moment. What would you want? Would you want her to stay? Do you think that's the most effective way forward for the Democrats, or would you want to, you know, end her time at the head of the party and like bring in a younger, um, fresher, less vilified face?
2: I, well, John will have a better answer to this. My answer would be probably you do want her there uh, because she is their most, she's their smartest tactician. She has a great record as a legislator and a great. She's a great. Member of the House and a great leader of the Democrats, but I don't know that you want Hoyer and Clyburn, who are the two and three right now, and you want to make really damn sure that you are uh, training up your new your new executive team, you're grooming a new executive team so that in in two years, in four years, you have a significant turnover of that because because the problem is not the as john said you can't you can't be something with nothing and right now there isn't a credible younger generation set of leaders there just doesn't exist and and so they need a little bit of time to get there and and during that time i think you do want pelosi being the master strategist and leader okay John is not going john's not gonna add anything to that
1: no i think that i mean i i think that's I think you're generally right, and I think uh, – um, I mean, I was I would just kind of repeat what you said. So. Okay. I, uh,
2: before we leave Pelosi and move on to impeachment, I just want to f- uh, repeat this idea that Ryan Grimm, a uh, Washington journalist, circulated on Twitter. I don't know if it's his idea. I saw it that way. Bridget, our, our researcher, pointed out to me, which is that, that uh, one thing that Democrats could do is to make John Lewis speaker and have Pelosi be majority leader uh, – and then have a transition plan. John Lewis, of course, is is also very old. I mean, he's probably 80 as well. But John Lewis is one, you know, arguably the greatest living American, one of certainly one of the handful of the greatest living Americans, the hero of the civil rights movement, been a, a you know, a very stalwart member of Congress for many years. I don't know that he's a great member of Congress. I actually haven't followed his legislative record. I have no idea if he'd be a decent House Speaker. But he certainly... He has like a symbolic weight and heft. And I, I I, just nod my head in the direction of that, that sentimental idea because John Lewis deserves all accolades and honors.
3: Well, it is – I mean there is an interesting notion here that you could have Pelosi in her tactician role but in the number two slot and just divide up the duties differently, right? So that you think of the, um, the person who's at the forefront as the face you want, like the person you want on television the most.
1: I don't think that – Nope, I, this is work. too clever. I think no. I mean, uh, again, it depends on what you want. the what you really want the speaker at the end of the day to have done. Um, and I don't think, by the way, either Lewis or Pelosi are the are the television person you want for the party. If you buy if you are a Democrat and you buy the idea that the the energy that's te- t- quote unquote television energy or optics energy of the party needs to be What people were talking about in the wake of this election, which is, um, you know, almost 40 new people, lots of them new and interesting and veterans and Democratic fighter pilots and and people of color and uh, different orientations and just the kind of vibrant future of America image that a lot of Democrats want to portray. That's the optic you want. And then I think then you – but I don't think you can – I don't think you can – the speaker has to be the speaker, and and so um, I don't think you can split it and kind of have somebody behind the scenes doing the, the tacti- tactical work because a lot of this stuff happens in the moment, um, and so the, the the speaker can't like then say like say hold on I got to go call the person who's in charge of tactics here.
2: Right, but also the optics of imagine if it's a man or a white man who'd give that to, like, oh, we're gonna have Nancy Pelosi do all the work while this this symbolic white guy gets the credit for it, right. and I mean, not, she wouldn't stand for that. does that not does not seem like a good look. All right, let's move on to impeachment, the other big question that Democrats are going to face. So, uh, Tom Steyer, this Democratic donor, had need to the need to impeach PAC, I think, and funneled a lot of money to Democratic campaigns. According to some surveys, a majority of dem- Democratic voters would like the House to consider impeachment. Seems to me like a catastrophically stupid plan to go in with the idea that you're going to impeach. Not to say that if the Mueller report doesn't show something dire or something, uh, you know, amazing comes out from various investigations, that, that it, impeachment isn't something that you'd have to consider as as an obligation. But to, to have impeachment be your first plan of attack seems to me unbelievably stupid – Emily, do you think there's – there's what's, what's the case, if you would, would care to characterize it, maybe you won't, for impeachment to be uh, an arrow in the quiver from the beginning?
3: I mean, I'm just – I completely agree with you that this is a terrible idea, thus resistant to making the case. What is the case? The Democrats have been yelling and screaming about this for two years. Now they're in power. The president is, like, a clear and present danger to the nation, and we have to address this right away. I just – I mean, I think the politics of it are bad for the Democrats. But I also think on the substance, you know, Trump was elected to office. And until we hear the results of the Mueller investigation and really understand um, the role he played, if any, in – you know, obstruction of justice or um, helping the Russians mess around with the election, whatever it was, I want those facts to be out there before I try to decide whether I think Trump should be impeached. And if um, for my elected officials, I feel like the responsibility is even higher to just be kind of sober here and um, and proceed with caution.
1: You both of cor- are making the correct points. I think also once you Get down. Once you start down the road for impeachment, the reason it should be an open and shut case and obvious to everyone is that um, – well, <laughs> A, that makes it easier. But B, once this thing gets started, a lot of stuff gets released into the atmosphere and people freelance and behave in all kinds of unpredictable ways and your party gets defined by the, the insanity that ensues when you're in a really cut and thrust where it's not an open and closed, uh, open and shut case. I think Republicans believe this was what happened with the Clinton impeachment. Um, uh, although there's a really interesting um, investigation of the Clinton impeachment in the Atlantic, um, in which Bob Bennett, the president's former lawyer, basically amuses out loud in, in in a way that has been on this show and lots of other places. Which was what would what would happen today if uh, to to a president Bill Clinton if impeachment was raised, given the the um, evolution in the way people think about accused in the accused anyway so it just it creates a completely unpredictable uh, environment and people who think about impeachment have this kind of antiseptic uh, it feels like the argument relies on an antiseptic impeachment proceeding and I think that's completely impossible
2: uh, Emily to me the big strategic question is not really impeachment or not impeachment because I assume that whoever the Democratic leader is is going to tamp down the impeachment they're not there's not a majority for to push for impeachment. Promptly within the Democratic Caucus, but to me the real question is policy or investigations, and what's the balance and what's the kind of metaphorical weight that you give to each of those. And the, I think the case, the, obviously, the case for for a strong policy focus for passing a minimum wage bill for focusing on health care is that a the president's not very good at those issues. B it shows what the Democratic Party stands for. It is C it's your actual freaking job is to legislate and. The public seems to desire that and also that, that that Democrats are relatively good at that compared to some of the political fighting, which they seem not so good at. The case for the investigations are that the, this is an incredibly corrupt administration. The president himself has, whether through the emoluments clause or just general misbehavior or the Russia stuff, has committed gross acts and his cabinet has committed gross acts and there there is uh, rampant corruption that needs to – and the government needs to restrain that. Which should the Democrats – do I mean and and you can't say I mean obviously they're going to choose both but but which one which one should they s- aspire to do more?
3: I mean I you convinced me last week or the week before that policy should come first and I was excited about the idea that the first bill they might introduce is about voting rights um, about automatic voter registration and addressing the Supreme Court's decision that weakened the Voting Rights Act that. Decision um, in Shelby County versus Holder. Like, they had a bunch of ideas for strengthening the democratic process. Now, maybe that's like wonkier than a lot of other people would go for, but healthcare is another really obvious one. That's what they campaigned on. And I just feel like it's so crucial to remind voters how you can affect people's day to day lives when Washington can seem abstract and far away and super frustrating. So that seems to me like it should be their priority, even though they're always going to say both and when you ask this question right. about policy versus investigations but there is a there is a decision to make about what gets the most oxygen and attention
1: i I mean it just seems to me that it's that the for any party the clearest way once you get power um to behave and this is why I, I'm just a person with hot takes and not actually in power but um is to do things that are – to use your investigative power and your – and the powers you've been given to tee up issues that are on your territory. So, I mean, this is what President Trump does with his – you know, the talk about the caravan and birthright citizenship. He gets in fights about – a policy issues that he thinks are important, but that keep the fights, the debates on his turf. And so um, I would think there's a whole range of policy issues um, that – and I don't – so I don't think – I think that's even closer to what I'm talking about than say something like the endless Benghazi hearings, which I think were, uh, were
2: ultimately a mistake for – a political mistake for republicans. John, how will Democrats grapple with the fact that, you know, their their fifteen dollar minimum wage bill is going to go nowhere? That is not going to become law. The Senate won't take it up. It'll it will never become law. And so the press will cover it, you know, the day the bill is passed, there'll be like you know, House passes minimum wage law that's going nowhere. But any investigation, any of those the Trump tweeting okay. about the investigation is gonna be Top of CNN, well, I top think, of, you know, Fox, top of MSNBC, and it's going to be the. Ah.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think the, the most clever political tacticians in either party figure out how to harness the, the rage or the whatever or the, the worst instincts of, of the media that cover them. To harness those for issues that they think are important, whether people like it or not, President Trump has found a way to do this. It's part of the fact that he's actually the president of the United States and he can send troops to the border. And he's perfectly happy to have a battle over whether the troops are really worthwhile being sent there. By the way, there seems to have been a, a slight change in, in Defense Secretary Mattis's way he's articulated what the troops are doing there. He now talks about it as training, uh, which is worth watching. Um Wait, but why? Uh, why is that I think worth that, watching well because more. originally he said they were there to meet an actual need. I mean that that, that in other words the, the the danger from the caravan was was uh such that th- this, these these reinforcements were required. If it's I about see. training then that's a secondary that's not the first reason everybody was all was Also uh,
3: might not uh, be a good uh, reason uh, to, to keep them there over Thanksgiving
1: right right it seems to me that it's always the the smart political thing to do is to is to have substantive fights over things that are on the territory you want them to be on and i don't know how they solve that but that's how smart people you know achieve uh, achieve their greatness is to find a way to tee those questions up in the, the environment we've got at the moment
2: emily do you have a take on how democrats can do that
3: no, not really. I'll be interested in watching them try. I mean, look, the media has a role to play here, not that we'll do it right or at least like not that cable news will do it right, but um, you know, the media could send different signals.
1: Also, I wonder if again, this goes back to whether a blue wave happened or not in the substantive sense, not the semantic sense, which is if it's true that all of the discussion about healthcare which happened largely under the radar of the freak show was effective then perhaps they don't need to do what you said which is you know let the freak show continue i think because you're in charge you get um you you might get stained by the freak show more because you're in charge of the, the house than than you would have pre uh takeover of the house but um you know if it's true that the the focus on healthcare ended up energizing and winning over hearts and minds then um maybe there's a di- maybe there can be a disconnect you can narrow cast just to your voters
2: Attorney General Matt Whitaker, or is he Attorney General Matt Whitaker, is (laughs) under fire this week. Whitaker has been appointed, perhaps, maybe sort of. No, he
3: was definitely appointed. There is a lawsuit about whether he should remain there, but he is definitely there. Like if you go to the office of the attorney general today, he will greet you at the door.
2: (laughs) Do do you think he's in the office already? That's part of his job. That's a I remember being at Maine Justice. That was a a good office. Yeah, he opens
3: the door for everyone. That's what he does. No, he's Uh, there.
2: Well, he was appointed to temporarily succeed uh, Fire Jeff Sessions at DOJ. He is the is acting he,
3: Attorney General of the United States. Is he
2: States. allowed to do the job, A- Emily? Fill in all these all the the bright colors with your crayons. <laughs> what is the what is the what is the case that he is the Attorney General? What is the case that he is not the Attorney General?
3: The case that he is the Attorney General is that Trump has both the statutory and constitutional prerogative to fill this um, job with someone. is not confirmed by the Senate for up to 210 days. That's the statutory limit. And the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department issued an opinion saying this is perfectly legal, pointing to lots of instances, most of them before the year 1860, in which the president um, filled vacant cabinet positions and other um, what are called principal officer posts with people who had not been Senate confirmed. It is also true on the other side of this ledger that since the Justice Department was created in 1870, we have never had someone who wasn't Senate-confirmed as the Attorney General. So in that sense, this is a really startling development, and the state of Maryland has sued already. There are other lawsuits that could be brought. I think that the legal question is really interesting, and there's something deep at stake here, which has to do with, like, do we want someone who's like a handpicked kind of um, someone who seems to have been chosen to do the bidding of the president to end or screw up an investigation that involves the president and his family um, who has not been vetted or confirmed by the Senate. Like, is that a good idea, Um, given how powerful the Justice Department is? I would say, like, no, it is obviously not a good idea. Um, The main purpose of the litigation, though, it seems to me just because of the timeline, is to pressure Trump into nominating someone to be attorney general who then would go and have to appear before the Senate. That's what we should want here is the process to unfold in its normal way. And so to me, the most alarming thing thus far is that partly because of the um, attention to the elections, this question of like, okay, how long does uh, Whitaker sit there in this supposedly acting role? And is Trump thinking about nominating him. And if not him, then who? That sort of seems to have like slipped out of the headlines. And it's actually really crucial. This is not someone who should be there in the medium to long term in this without Senate confirmation.
2: Right. Emily, just you, you made the case, the kind of articulated case for why he's legally allowed to have this job. Can you also quickly articulate the the argument about why he is not allowed? Just the what? why those who say he can't have this position say it?
3: Well, there's a statutory there are two statutory um schemes Congress set up. One is specific to the Justice Department. If we were just looking at that statute, Rod Rosenstein would be the Attorney General. So, when you have competing statutes, you know, each side can pick the one they want. The constitutional question here has to do with what I was just saying about power and about the role of the Senate in confirming cabinet secretaries. So Justice Clarence Thomas actually wrote a concurrence um, several years ago saying, hey, wait a second, the appointments clause does not provide for people being in these principal officer positions um, who are not set and confirmed like we need to. Really rein that in. And then on the other side, there's this 1898 Supreme Court case, which the facts of it are so far removed from the present that I have trouble taking seriously the notion that like this would govern the law. I don't think it does. But what happened was that the United States official in what was then called Siam, Siam. now Thailand, (laughs) Got, like, deathly ill and had to be replaced in an emergency, and the the president was able to do that without Senate confirmation. I mean, to me, it seems like if that's what you've got, this 1890 case called Eaton about Siam, like, obviously, this is an open question legally, and the Supreme Court could say something else, but it will take too long for the litigation to get to the Supreme Court, and really, this is a matter of politics.
2: And and actually, John, before, I know John, John is champing to say something, mm-hmm. but, but before we get to that, I have one other question, which is... so. One of yes, the claims is is that he uh, he is allowed to be temporarily appointed to this position for two hundred and ten days and and even longer if there is then a pending nomination. My question is: Let's say he's appointed for two hundred ten days. Could the president then appoint someone else for two hundred ten more days, or is it does the two hundred ten days encompass uh, the entirety of how Great long question. a president can appoint someone temporarily? Is it just the is it the person two hundred ten days, or is that that? Temporariness, two hundred ten days.
3: I'm not sure, but um, that is distressing. Cause if, cause if it's, to think sure. that we could just have That's, yeah, like totally distressing day yeah. periods going on in odd infinitum. I mean, that is like right. That is uh, that is a, not a good idea. Oi, uh, go uh,
1: ahead. Jill. Well, there's also. Uh, I mean, uh, so. I talked to Senator Kennedy from Louisiana last Friday who seemed to think that there was going to be a quick appointment. I don't know if his mind has changed. Um, but you should also note that Whitaker holds just outside of – well, I've got two points. One is Whitaker holds some ex- really exciting views uh, <laughs> like Marbury Madison was wrongfully uh, um, yeah, deciding that the and therefore the, there is no judicial review. Yeah. yeah, and that they're an inferior branch of government.
2: <laughs> I'm, I'm sympathetic to that guy. But S- go ahead,
1: <laughs> Senator Kennedy said about Marbury Madison. I think you should take another, another lick at that case. <laughs> um, the, um, uh, but then the second thing is Emily isn't the, um, isn't the. Th- Forgetting precedent <laughs> isn't the thing you want to protect. That if an attorney general is going to make a determination that affects the executive branch, Congress wants to have some say in choosing who the attorney general is. Yes, is that what is that what is that this kind of sub? Because you you want um basically you want some uh, maintenance of of um, separation of powers to exist in in the specific set of issues he might have a hand in.
3: Right, and also I think this is the point that Neil Katyal, um former solicitor general is making. An acting attorney general hasn't been confirmed to the Senate. That person is like very much in the sway of the person who appointed him, who is President Trump. Like effectively President Trump is directly controlling Whitaker's future employment. And so that right. gets very close to the idea that President Trump is the judge of his own case in the Mueller investigation. If Whitaker is really serious about becoming about supervising the Mueller investigation, which he does seem to want to do, right? There's this separate fight going on about whether he should recuse himself because of all the, you know, Fox News and um, CNN commentary he did railing against that investigation. But as long as he is in that role and he doesn't even have the independence that. Sen- Senate confirmation would provide effectively. Senate, President Trump is at the top of that investigation in a in a different way than you know was already true since he is the leader of the executive branch.
2: Can, can I make two uh, points, which are just like really uh, points that some someone uh, who time traveled from 1978 and suddenly showed up in America? Would, th- those were the first points they would make. Number one, it is like just st- shockingly embarrassing to have this this kind of hack. This failed politician, this lawyer for a scam patent company, this guy whose principal qualification for the job is that he went on television and attacked a legal investigation of the president to be the chief law enforcement official. That's number one. The second one, which is much more unsettling to me, is we, we're not even talking about the fact that for the president of the United States, the only qualification for who should be the chief law enforcement official of the United States. The only qualification is how does this person feel about the investigation of me? The entire choice of who sets and administers national legal policy is is determined by the president's attitude towards this investigation of him. Jeff Sessions, you know, God love him, I don't. Like was it was a person who had a tremendous was tremendously effective at legal policy in ways that served conservative interests or a lot of conservative interests. And for the president just threw him over. Because Sessions didn't didn't jibe with him on this investigation. It is it's it's a disgrace that this is the the qualification that the president demands. It is it's appalling. And And that is we don't talk about that enough.
3: Right. And yet one more time, we have, you know, Republicans in the Senate who have the power of confirmation who clearly could pressure Trump to um, quickly nominate someone and have it be someone who has independence and integrity.
2: Why, John? Go, going to this the Senate question. I mean, you, you, the president has a Senate. Uh, there's a Republican-controlled Senate. There will be a Republican-controlled Senate in January. He cannot possibly make the case that I can't get a nominee through the Senate. There's no There's no case that the the that the country would grind to a halt. You know, someone would face tough questioning from Democrats for sure. But but a Republican Attorney General candidate will get confirmed if Republicans think he's a he, he or she is a qualified person. Why are senators not? like screaming about this. Why don't they care?
1: Well, uh, you mean, well, because I think they're trying, uh, I think at the moment they're trying to, they're hoping he'll name somebody, right? So that'll take this problem off their hands, the Whitaker problem off their hands. So, and also, by the way, they've done two things. They've waited for somebody to be nominated, but then also there has been push from Republicans for, and Mitch McConnell just blocked it, but for the statute that protects Mueller. So that's interesting. I would um, – those voices might grow louder the the more days Whitaker is in office. The question is when the president names an attorney general, um, you know, I mean even Lindsey Graham who has been supportive of the president and particularly on this question who is basically first said if you fire Sessions, there will be a revolt and then basically said, no, Sessions has got to go, has said, you know, the the question I would ask the next attorney general is, are you going to let Mueller conduct his investigation and finish it without interference, and that that was the threshold question for him. Now, that might change for Lindsey Graham, uh, although he said it relatively recently, but I think it would be the threshold question for people like Tom Tillis and for other Republicans. So I don't think the fact that the president—and and if that's the case, then the, the attorney general who gets nominated— it, building off of what you said previously, is going to essentially have publicly affirmed the sanctity of the investigation and the, and protection of its final whatever. So that locks that in. Uh, so that I can imagine a way in which that actually wouldn't be great for the president, uh, locking that in and... But I think that would be the result of anybody who gets confirmed would have to lock that in.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: There are plenty of conservatives who could be excellent attorney generals. Like, let's just make that clear. If conservative legal policy is your priority, um, it, it's just it is not there is nothing um, normal or necessary about this situation with Whitaker. And, you know, one interesting development this week was a small group of um Conservative lawyers uh, led by George Conway and also John Bellinger III, a former Bush official, started a group that is effectively trying to say, like, we are conservatives, but there are larger principles here than President Trump's policy goals. Uh, We should be thinking about the importance of the rule of law and freedom of the press the independence of the Justice Department, they might want to add um, voting rights or at least not making baseless claims of um, cheating elections to their list. And, you know, I think it's another sort of never Trump move. And these are always these like smaller breakaway groups. But it's heartening to see people being willing to put general principles um, above partisanship.
2: All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When? you are like me without a freezer and therefore your vodka is now warm and so you cannot make your martinis and thus can only have the beer in your fridge and so your cocktail is a beer, what will you be chattering about, John Dickerson?
1: So My Cocktail Chatter is um, about a fantastic book of American history. I've learned about it from Joanne Freeman, the uh, Yale professor who most recently wrote The Field of Blood. Uh, and I'm a, a huge fan of hers. But it was a um, link to another uh, professor, um, Nick Kapoor, I think is how you pronounce his name. He's a Rutgers professor, historian of Japan and um, East Asia and he tweeted this week about an American history book from 1861. And the book starts with George Washington with a bow and arrow next to the goddess of America. Okay, that's fine. Then Christopher Columbus. Okay, that's cool. Um, it looks like, you know, basically it's an American history book with, with, um, uh with characters that don't look you know they look Japanese and not American. But then in the third one, George Washington is suddenly defending his wife Carol from a British official named Asura, which is the name of a, a Buddhist deity. Then Washington's second in command John Adams battles an enormous snake. Then Washington and his wife Carol meet a really young looking Benjamin Franklin. Uh, and it goes on and on and just gets weirder and weirder. John Adams carrying a cannon and then finally my favorite is George Washington who uh, s- straight up punches a tiger. Um, so uh, these images are all in his um, uh, Twitter feed. They're, they're great and then also he says that it's available actually online at um, a, a university and that's also at the end of his long and, um, and delightful uh, Twitter stream.
3: Sounds like the sort of dream version of Whistle Stop. (laughs) Yes,
1: exactly. I know we don't have enough punching tigers in Whistle Stop.
3: Exactly.
2: Emily, what's your chatter?
3: We are... Possibly going to see some important bipartisan compromise in the lame duck session around sentencing reform and prison reform. This is a bill that um, members of Congress from both parties have been working on, I think, for years. Um, and President Trump just announced his support, which may give enough um, conservative law and order Republicans Cover that they'll actually get these things passed. So, kind of related to that is um, an amazing study that came out this week about what's called holistic defense. So, this is legal representation that was pioneered in the Bronx a couple decades ago. And the study is about um, the way that the Bronx defenders use this kind of defense. Basically, it's social workers being paired with lawyers to try to address the issues in defendants' lives that often have more to do with why they're in court than, like, anything that's actually happening in the courtroom. So things like housing and mental health and um, drug abuse. And what is interesting about this study, it's a big study of almost 600,000 cases from um, 2000 until 2014 UPenn participated in it and also the RAND Corporation. And they found that defendants who got this holistic model of defense were 16 percent less likely to go to jail or prison. Um, And they got sentences that were 24 percent shorter. They were also 9 percent less likely to be detained pretrial. And it matches um, what I've seen in court in Brooklyn where lawyers paired with social workers I think can just be really effective in – a way that involves solving the problems in people's lives, the problems that led them to get to court, in addition to dealing with the kind of straight-up legal questions in front of them. So interesting study. You can read more about it at the Marshall Project, and we can post the link.
2: All right. My Chatter is about a story in Emily's very own New York Times about a highway in Brazil. And it was just a it's just a really interesting story about Highway BR-262, which is one of the Only maybe the only road or the main road that cuts through the Pantanal, which is a a soggy, naturally wondrous region in in Brazil. And the story is about how it is the deadliest road in the world for wildlife. And there's a biologist named Wagner Fisher, who's been monitoring and chronicling it and taking photographs of the roadkill for years. And so it's just a, it's a really sad story about the, all the caimans and pumas and rare birds that get whacked on this highway. And the reason they end up getting killed is because it's this highway is sort of like slightly higher than what is sort of kind of the damp, soggy landscape around it and a dry area. And so it's a good place to, to, to cross and a good place to walk on. And, but it's also a place where you're going to get hit by a car because that's where the traffic is also. The point is not that this is the worst tragedy in the world. There's lots of, I mean, road roadkill is a thing that happens wherever there are cars and trucks. And in fact, the scale of death, is not that enormous by what it doesn't seem like that enormous you know it's a thousand animals dead over the course of a couple of years but what it points out is that this is all associated it's all part of this kind of development of this wild region and the the farms that go in and the the encroachment on indigenous uh, people and the the sort of destruction of natural habitat Collectively, all these different things add up to being a tragedy for the animals there. Anyway, it's got gruesome photos, but it's a really interesting story about Highway BR262. And, of course, we have a listener chatter. Again, excellent, excellent listener chatters. Please keep them coming as you also please keep conundrums coming you can tweet at us at at slate gabfest with your listener chatter or with your conundrum and you can also send your conundrum to uh to us at uh, gabfest at slate.com so drew thurlow at at drew thurlow points us to a story about why we're living in the age of the chair and it's a story which i think was on the bbc my computer stopped working so i can't actually click the link but if I remember, it was on the BBC, and I think it's from a book that's coming out about the chair, which just points out that chairs are a new phenomenon. Who knew that chairs, people didn't really have chairs for a long time, or chairs were only something that the very rich had, and chairs were very uncomfortable in the early days. And chairs, are, you can tell that they don't exist. They're not mentioned in literature. They're barely in Shakespeare. But by the time you get to kind of the mid-19th century, the chair becomes common mention. It's a common object in life. This author estimates that there are 60 billion chairs in the world. That seemed high to me, but it's, you know, it's a perfectly, it's a reasonable guess. It doesn't seem unreasonable. I, they're probably, let me think about my own house. They're probably, yeah, they're probably, I have certainly have like five chairs per person in my house. Um, anyway, and the, the chair, it turns out, has these massive societal effects, notably on our health. Make Chairs make us a lot less healthy and the chair even more than the computer I
3: bet they also help humans convene, right? I mean we spend longer times talking to each other when we sit down, that's why standing meetings are That is a good point
2: this podcast is going on forever because we get to sit down.
3: No, I'm standing up and I need it to be over actually um, because (laughs) of that (laughs) Um, the story by the way is in the BBC and the author of it is named Vibar Cregan Reed, which is an awesome name
2: that is our show for today. The GapFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGapFest. And again, tweet some chatter at us and tweet some conundrums at us. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson. John Dickerson, my studio buddy today. I'm Dave Plotz. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week.
6: Ever listen to podcasts with your kids? It's a great way to keep them entertained and engage their minds without relying on screens. I want to tell you about a new kids history podcast hosted by me, Joy Dolo. It's called Forever Ago, and I teamed up with the producers of the award-winning kids podcast, Brains On, to make it. Forever Ago dives into the amazing backstories of everyday stuff, like emojis, video games, and skateboards. We use games, skits, and kid co-hosts to keep the whole family engaged while teaching listeners to think critically about history. Along the way, we'll hear some incredible stories, like how a curious teenager revolutionized skateboarding. Gnarly. How alarm clocks used to just be people. Rise and shine. And how the poop emoji almost didn't happen. You can find Forever Ago on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.